As you all are hopefully aware, we have an election coming up this week on Tuesday. I thought I was aware until I showed up at the, the uh, voting booth on Tuesday, and they told me it's, it's not November 1st, it's November 8th that we all vote. I know my own ridiculousness surprises me often. Um, even like it did last week, talking about the story of Haman, I said it was many times, many times I said it was in the book of Ruth. But it's in the book of Esther, if you didn't know that. Um, about a hundred times I said the book of Ruth, I think, but again. Uh, but we have elections this week, an important moment where we decide as a country about leadership, and this is important. And thankfully, right, it's not a presidential election year, praise God. <laughs> not that many advertisements and all the rest, not that much more antagonism in our culture. But nonetheless, these midterms are still an important moment of decision-making. And we've been going through this series on 1 Samuel, looking at the rise of kingship in Israel. And consider how much greater, not just electing a congressman or a woman or a senator or even a president, but how much greater influence a king has over a country. When they are the lawmaker and the judge, they're, they're the general and the spiritual leader for a country, so a shift in kingship has massive ramifications on a country. And so as we come walking through 1 Samuel, we're about halfway through the book now in chapter 16, and we're going to see this shift and this change in leadership. A new king is about to be anointed. What does this have to do with us here in Rice County, though? How does this affect our lives? This decision, hear me, won't just reverberate, reverberate through the people of Israel for the next decades, but it will reverberate down through the ages as from this new king will come the king of kings. And from this new king will come the hope and peace for your lives and my life. All from this new selection of leadership. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you open up with me to the book of First Samuel. It's about a quarter of the way through your Bible. We're about halfway through the story in chapter 16. First Samuel chapter 16. So we start, I have a question for you. What makes you grieve? What makes you mourn? We're, we're right to mourn about the loss of loved ones, or even when dreams that we have might suddenly change and be shattered. We're right to mourn for those things. But what makes you grieve? As we start chapter 16, we see that Samuel is mourning for Saul, who was the king. Samuel is mourning for Saul. This should strike us, if you're familiar with the story, as a bit strange. Because Samuel used to be the leader for all of Israel. Uh, he, he was their judge. He led them into battle. He was a spiritual leader for them for years. And then the people of Israel came before Samuel and they said, Give us a king. And as any of us might, Samuel was a bit offended at this request. He was their leader. So by asking for a king, they're kind of kicking him out of leadership. But God speaks to Samuel and he says, they are not rejecting you, Samuel. They're actually rejecting me. They're rejecting me as their king. That's the true betrayal going on here. But God in his kindness He's not thrown off by this and their rejection of him. So God leads, uh, leads Samuel to choose a new king that we heard, Saul. And Saul, he is 
taller than everybody else in his, Israel. It says he's as handsome as any man that you could find in the country. He is through and through king material. He looks like the perfect man for the job. But as the years go by, we see that Saul is not set on God. Saul's not chasing after obedience towards God and knowing him. Saul's chasing after his own name. Saul's chasing after his own greatness. So God rejects Saul as his king. And this leads Samuel to mourn and to grieve. Why? I don't think it's because he's lost leadership personally. I don't think it's because Samuel has invested in Saul anointed him, encouraged him, drew out his leadership. I think Saul is mourning this loss of potential for the people of God and leadership. I think Saul is mourning, Samuel rather, is mourning this wasted leadership in Saul. He had such potential to lead the people of God towards good things, but instead he's just concerned about himself and his own life and his own power. So Samuel is grieving this loss of leadership, which again, what makes us grieve? If we look even at the news and evangelical circles the last decade or two, we'll see a lot of notable pastors and other spiritual leaders have had heartbreaking falls from leadership. Massive character flaws that have come out. And to be honest, a lot of times this grabs my attention, but it doesn't always grab my grieving. You know what I mean? I might talk about it in conversations, but I don't necessarily mourn for this wasted leadership for God's people, this loss of leadership for us. Again, it's well known in our culture <laughs> that a lot of people have problems with evangelicals because of hypocrisy or the way we deal with things more broadly in our culture. And this becomes a conversation topic, but does it grab our hearts like Samuel to mourn for the people of God? Does it lead us to grief that we feel what God feels for his people? What causes us to mourn? What leads us into grief? Even as Samuel's here at the beginning of chapter 16, God is moving him forward. He doesn't let Samuel stay in this place, but he says, fill your horn with oil. Get up for I am sending you to Jesse in Bethlehem. And I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now, I love this. God, God grieves our disobedience, but he's never thrown off track or surprised. For beautifully, his plan of salvation does not rest on us. His, his plan of redemption for us does not rest on our shoulders, but he will accomplish it completely by himself. So he is moving forward. Grieving our disobedience, but yet we can never throw off his work of redemption in the world. God is not surprised. So we call Samuel, fill your horn with oil. We are stepping into new things that I've been planning and longing for for a long time. But even as God is eager, Samuel's a bit hesitant. He says, Lord, if I go and anoint a new king, Saul is going to hear about this and he's going to kill me. What an amazing thing this tells us about Saul. Back when Saul was first going to become king and he heard this, Saul thought he was too insignificant for the job. Who am I and who's my family that I would be king? 
And even when he's announced and proclaimed king, where is Saul? But he's hiding in the baggage. He's so afraid of being king. But what Saul once thought he was too insignificant for, now he clings to violently. Now what Saul was once afraid of, he will now kill for. So just take a quick lesson in this with me. The gifts that God gives us and the roles that he allows us to step into can dangerously become the center of our identity. We, we can take the gifts of God and the roles that he gives us and we can make them the center of who we are so that we cling to them violently and cannot take criticism and cannot bear the thought of losing that. So the gift or the role of being a husband, wife, father, mother, pastor, leader, you name it, whatever gift role God might place in your life, be aware of the danger of how that might become the center of who you are and then you can't bear having that taken from you. So God gives Samuel a secondary reason for going to Jesse, a disguise, if you will. He says, take a heifer. I'm calling you to go make a sacrifice in Bethlehem. So Samuel goes, takes a heifer, and he shows up at Bethlehem. And interestingly, the people are terrified when Samuel shows up. They're thinking, what is God's prophet Samuel doing here in our town? Is he here in judgment? Is he here in peace? Samuel tries to reassure them, I'm, I'm just here to make a sacrifice and worship God with you all. And little do they know, this town of Bethlehem, little do they know that a new king has been born among them and is about to be anointed. Now, even more than that, little do they know that from this king will one day ultimately come the king of kings. Little do they know that ultimately one day we're going to be singing songs about this old little town of Bethlehem that they're going to be known in this way. They have no idea of the grace God has put right in the midst of them. And so Samuel, he's there in Bethlehem with this sacrifice and he calls Jesse and his family to the sacrifice and feast. And Samuel knows he's going to anoint one of his sons, but he doesn't know which one. God just said, anoint the one for me that I indicate. So there's this suspense here. As Samuel knows it's one of these sons, but I don't know which one. God's going to indicate when I see him. So first up, the oldest of Jesse's sons, Eliab, comes in and Samuel sees him. And Eliab, he's tall, he's handsome. He's not just prom king material, he's like king king material, you know? Like he just looks like he's fit for the job. And so Samuel thinks this is definitely the guy. Surely the Lord's anointed stands before me right now. But God sees things differently. And in one of the most important passages in all of 1 Samuel, one of the most well-known in the whole Old Testament, God says this in chapter 7, uh, verse 7 of chapter 16. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Hear this. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. How true is this about us, though, looking at the outward appearance? There's research that's been done that people who are considered beautiful receive positive bias of getting better pay better grades, and are seen as more sociable. Even if we try to reject this, this positive bias comes out. 
And sometimes researchers call this the beauty premium or, or pretty privilege is what they call this. And, and hear this, even Samuel is fooled into this. He's a wizened leader. He's an experienced mentor for Saul. And, and Saul, again, wasn't he the ultimate look-like-a-king candidate, yet was total failure? Samuel should have known all of this, yet he's still fooled into thinking, surely this is the one that God has chosen. We look at the externals and make such quick judgments of people, but such good news. God does not get fooled by external appearances. He's not fooled by the show that we might try to put on for one another. That God sees through that into our heart, into our motives, into the places that we can't even discern in ourselves. God sees the heart. Sit in this question with me. As God is looking at the heart, what is he looking for? What is God after? It says this earlier in 1 Samuel in chapter 13, that the Lord had rejected Saul and he was looking for a man after his own heart. He, he's looking for someone, in other words, that loves him most of all. He's looking for someone that's chasing after knowing him, longs to be with him and to be like him. He's looking for a king whose top priority, the thing that they most want is God himself. That's what God is looking for in the heart. And we see how unlike this is Saul. Again, we've seen this in these chapters that Saul is set on himself, not on knowing God. And, and he'll obey when it's convenient for him, but not when it costs him. Saul's most after being pleasing to the people around him, not pleasing God. He, he's after building up his own name and monuments for his own honor. He's not up for building up God's glory and God's people. Saul's heart is set on himself, chasing his own rights and his own power. And God's looking for a king that will chase his heart. And we'll see here in a few verses that this king God is choosing is named David. And David will later write many psalms. And I just want to jump ahead and look at what some of these psalms say. And notice how this gives us a picture of David's heart. I love this. It says, first of all, in Psalm 18, verse 1, David writes, I love you, Lord, my strength. This is right out of the gates. Psalm 18, verse 1, the first thing that uh, David wants to speak to God, I love you. Lord, my strength. You're my refuge. I love you. I don't think we'd ever hear these words coming out of Saul's mouth. That God is the one that he loves. Or again, David writes in Psalm 63, verse 1. He says, you God are my God. Earnestly I seek you. He says, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. That's what he's saying his soul feels like. Dry, weary, parched land where there's no water. I long for you. You're the thing I most desire. You're the thing I crave, earnestly seeking. That David can't help but write these things, sing these kinds of lines to God. This is where his heart is. Or again, in Psalm 27, verse 1. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Again, Saul wouldn't write these lines. Saul's afraid of what the people around him think. Saul's afraid of soldiers leaving too soon before the battle. Saul's afraid of other people. His heart is not set on God. He's afraid of losing his own power. He's afraid of losing the kingship. What David's most afraid of is losing God. He's most afraid of anything interfering in his relationship with the Lord. What are you most afraid of? What is your fear, if you will? This is what leads David to write, One thing I ask, and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. You see what David's heart is chasing after? You see what he longs for the most? This, this is the one thing that I really want. This is the one thing I'm going to seek to be with, dwell, commune with God. That's what I most long for. So for you and me, as God is looking at our hearts, these hidden motives and places in us, what does he see us chasing? What are you after the most? As your heart just naturally comes out with words of praise, what do you say? Is it like David, I love you, O Lord, my strength. You are the great desire of my life. I thirst for you in a dry and parched land. What is God seeing in your heart? What are you chasing after? So David, as we'll see, he is after God's own heart. But Samuel, Samuel, he's still stuck on Eliab. We're way back there still. He's still stuck on Eliab looking like the best king. And God tells him, no, I have rejected him. So Jesse brings out the next son, and God rejects this one as well. And the next son, and the next son, and the next son. He brings out, get the seven sons. And every single one of them, the Lord's like, nope, not him, nope, not him, nope. At some point, he runs out, and Samuel has to ask Jesse, do you have any more sons? That's hard to ask somebody who has seven of them, right? Like, is that not, or do you have any more? Was this it? Only the seven. And Jesse says, I do have one more son, but he's out watching the flock in the fields. And this was a typical task for youngest sons because it was the least favorite chore that had to be done. I mean, you had to be out in the fields alone in solitude, a little bit boring, just hanging out with the sheep. It's exhausting because day and night, one of them might wander off and you have to bring them back in. It's dangerous as you have to fight off predators, bears, and lions, risking your life for these sheep. It's also not the best hygiene you've ever had living out in the fields with the sheep. Nobody wants this job, so it's, it's for the youngest runt of the family. And so he says, yes, he's out with the sheep in the field. And Samuel, he's not going to wait. He's not going to go forward, rather. He says, we will wait until he comes. So you've got to wonder what all the townspeople are thinking. Samuel shows up doing this sacrifice. Now we can't eat and move forward until this random son of Jesse gets out of the fields with the sheep? And and you know this isn't a five or ten minute wait. They all got to linger around for a while. What in the world is it with this son of Jesse? Why are we waiting for him? Eventually, the son comes in. Samuel sees him. And the Lord says, this is the one. This is the one. So Samuel gets out his oil, pours it over his head. 
we hear his name is David. This is God's chosen one. This is the one after his own heart. This will be the future king of Israel. And what a shock that must have been to the townspeople. This youngest son, this David, is being anointed king? Don't we already have a king? How's this going to work? What a shock they must have felt. But hear me, this isn't the last time that God's chosen one would be shocking to people. We see later in the coming of Jesus that people thought he came from the wrong neighborhood. He didn't grow up in the right town. Jesus hung out with the wrong people. Some thought he wasn't well-known enough. Others thought they knew him all too well. And they rejected him and thought, no way that you could be God's anointed one. No way you could be the Messiah. And it says in Isaiah that he had no beauty or majesty on his external appearance that we should want him. Nothing on his external appearance that we should desire him. Instead, Jesus' glory was internal in his heart. As John writes, he was full of grace and truth. And so this was a surprising Messiah that ultimately comes in Jesus. But even as David is being anointed with this oil, if that wasn't sign enough of what God was going to do, says the spirit of the Lord came on David mightily. Came on David mightily. And this is what the oil is meant to signify in the first place, not just wanting to put some weird stuff on his head. It's meant to signify the blessing and Holy Spirit coming down on someone, anointing them for leadership. And so the Spirit comes on David, but interestingly, it also says in 1 Samuel 16, the Spirit leaves Saul. It comes on David, and the Spirit leaves Saul. Interestingly, this is the only time in all of Scripture that we hear that the Spirit departs or leaves someone. Uh, We see David praying about this in Psalm 51 when he cries out to the Lord after sin in his own life, take not your Holy Spirit from me. I think David's saying this because he realizes what's happened in the life of Saul before him. Again, it's a good reminder for us too that even though David is set on God's heart, he's not perfect. He makes some massive mistakes in his life, but he still brings authentic repentance and most longing for God. Take not your spirit from me. I saw what happened to Saul. So what a massive judgment on Saul. The spirit departs from him. And instead we see that an evil spirit is sent from the Lord to torment Saul. This raises a lot of questions. And we don't know exactly if this is an evil spirit, what we might think of as a demon, or if it's just a spirit that brings evil or negative consequences, torment to Saul. Either way, it shows us in the eyes of 1 Samuel that God is in control of all things. That, that even an evil spirit is underneath the jurisdiction of God who has full control over the whole universe. Nothing happens without him being aware and in control. So as Saul is tormented by this spirit, He begins to look for a solution, and his attendants say, we should find someone to play music for you. Specifically, someone that can play the lyre, which was a bit like a a hand harp slash guitar, some kind of mix of the two right there. We should look for someone who can play music for you. How interesting is this? The scripture is highlighting music is helpful for our spiritual well-being. Don't you feel this? Even this morning, That God has designed music as a way to bring joy and to bring peace to our inner being. 
for us to get rid of anxiety and fear and to come into his presence. It's not a manipulation of our hearts. It's what our hearts were designed for in the first place. And as music, God-given language of our heart prods us to come out of these unhealthy places and into his presence. So take this as an encouragement. Surround yourself with music that leads you into the joy and presence of God. Find songs that stir up your heart for God. It's meant to be an aid to you spiritually. Surround yourself with this kind of music. So Saul likes this idea. And one of his attendants says, I know of an amazing lyre player who's from Bethlehem. And get this, he's a son of Jesse, and he's a handsome guy, and he also has the spirit of the Lord with him. And Saul's like, that's a great resume. Let's bring in this guy and he can serve me. So they send to Bethlehem and they bring back the son of Jesse. And who do you think this is that's coming to serve Saul but David? the very one that God has just chosen to be the next king in Saul's place. Ironically, Saul chooses himself to serve him. You see the irony here? The one that the Lord has chosen is also the one that Saul chooses to serve him. And as David comes and plays this music, ministers to Saul, in this moment of torment, when he plays the lyre, he actually feels relief. Saul is relieved from this spiritual torment. Think beautifully, 1 Samuel's painting a picture of what will ultimately happen when God's true and great king will come. When the ultimate anointed one comes, that he will bring relief spiritually to those who are being tormented. He'll bring peace to us in the ways that we do not have peace. So beautifully, when Jesus comes and begins his ministry, says that he's baptized, and as he comes out of the water, get this, but the Holy Spirit comes down on Jesus like a dove, that he is anointed with the Holy Spirit. He's the true Christ, the true anointed one. So Jesus, fully God in the flesh, has God, the Holy Spirit, come on him, and there's this voice from heaven that says, this is my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So Jesus, fully God in the flesh, is anointed by God the Spirit and proclaimed to be the beloved son by God the Father. He is the true and greatest anointed one. And when Jesus is stating his own mission in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, hear what he says about what this Holy Spirit is calling him to do. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This, Jesus is saying, is my mission statement. I'm here to bring freedom for the captives. I'm here to bring joy for the oppressed. And all of you who are overwhelmed, I'm here to bring you to life and life to the full. This is Jesus' mission statement, what the Spirit does in us. This is also why Paul later writing says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. So when the Spirit comes by God's true anointed, he brings relief to you and I. He brings freedom to you and I. I pray this is true even right now. I love the honesty of Joe earlier as well, and I know many people come into this room and you feel oppression. 
You feel anxiety. You feel worry. Things that are far too large for you to handle. And the beauty of the gospel is not that we are in control of our lives and we can save ourselves. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come and died for us. That Jesus Christ has come, the anointed one, to bring his spirit into our lives. That where the spirit of the Lord is, there would be freedom in you, even right now. I'm going to invite the band to come back up, that we can keep singing. But I want you to sit in this. As we talk about before this change of leadership, what's in charge in your heart? Who's leading your ways? In what places do you need to submit yourself to Jesus and say, look, I see that I have this trouble in my life, this oppressing me, and I need the spirit of freedom to come. I need your freedom, O Lord. Would you breathe your life into me? Think about this leadership in your heart again. What are you most chasing after? Is this anxiety and worry perhaps coming from something in your life that's become the center that shouldn't be. That maybe you're saying, I I feel this undue weight on my shoulders because I have something I love the most that is not God. And that's why there's this distress and lack of joy in me. Do you need a shift in leadership in your life? That the anointed one, the spirit would come into you. And that would you pray with me?